Chapter 10. Throughout 2014, I focused on building my new business and not drinking, while Clotine had been more and more severely losing touch with reality. I had been distracted since 2008. There was my alcohol dependence, my two divorces, and three marriages, and my three back surgeries. And now I was burying myself in the work of building my own website development business. Since I had stopped drinking, I could maintain a great relationship with my computer. It did what I told it to do, usually. My work gave me instant results. Make an edit, click refresh, and voila, results. My work had become an escape, one that replaced alcohol. I had even joined a local networking group that met every week. Interaction with real people. I began to feel capable. I still wasn't sure if I could support myself financially, but there was a light at the end of the tunnel. Functional relationships with the people closest to me were another story. Nothing had changed about my relationship with Mark except that I could now remember what I said in all our conversations. After several months without alcohol, my reasons for marrying Mark in the first place were laid bare and beginning to evaporate. I rarely saw my daughters. But I still maintained enough of a connection with Clotine, and I had enough perspective, based on all I knew about her, to notice that she'd been calling me several times a week to tell me about what they were doing next door. The neighbors were kidnapping and raping women. They were prostituting them. My daughters were there. She was worried. Were they part of it? Once she took a cab to my house after I married Mark, she tried to call me, and I hadn't answered. Mark opened the door, and she said accusingly, Where's my daughter? Is she okay? Let me see her. Once I came to the door, I fell into my familiar role of reassurance. Hey, Mom, I said, what are you doing here? You didn't answer your phone, she said. Where were you? The visit jarred Mark. He didn't like opening the door to my distraught mother, her finger in his face. I told him he was exaggerating. What was the big deal, I said. She wanted to check on me, and when she saw that I was okay, she went away. But inside, I knew exactly what the big deal was. I knew the reason why my mother had never lived with me as an adult, and why I would never allow her to. The reason she never babysat my children once they were old enough to tell me through tears that she'd spanked one of them. Her paranoia contained as much menace as it had when I was young. Could I be sure she wouldn't attack Mark one day, wrapped up in some warped, paranoid fantasy about what he was trying to do to me? She wasn't safe. The calls came more often, and more often in the middle of the night. When I picked up, she might say, I could hear you talking in Hildy's apartment. Hildy was a neighbor who lived in her building two floors below. It was pointless to ask Clotine how she could possibly think she could hear me from the receiving end of a phone of a neighbor who lived two floors down. So I just said, are you sure it was me? She called my daughters too. They were college age by this time and had phones of their own. They stopped answering. She complained that her neighbor's TV volume was so loud and she was sure the neighbor was doing it on purpose to conceal her activities. I rolled my eyes and moved on to other topics of conversation. But soon I couldn't move to any topic without her referring back to one of her delusions. 
She sent daily emails to groups of people, some of her own children, my two daughters, other relatives, but she also included strangers on the list I didn't know and would never meet. The emails were mostly astrological updates, but they made less and less sense, even within the parameters of their own strange logic. August 16th, 2014. Also, I have a suspicion that my neighbors are calling people and places I used to know and are asking them for money for utilities, doctor bills, etc. Please don't let anybody we know be fooled by this scam. It may have been going on for a long time. Geez, I could spend all day saying why I want to get away from here or get rid of my neighbor that uses my name all of the time. Once around this time, I was standing with her in the parking lot of her apartment building, leaning against my car. Before my brain could stop the words from tumbling out, I asked her, Mom, do you think any of this stuff you're saying about your neighbor might be going on in your head? Her eyes glittered, and I saw a shadow of the tsunami that regularly crashed over me when I was a kid. The way her eyes looked when she'd pounced on Joan back in Arizona and screamed at her to get out. The way her eyes looked when she slapped the taste out of my mouth after I told a neighbor we were unloading free groceries from the local food pantry. No, absolutely not, she fumed. Why would I say that? How dare I even hint at such a thing? How dare anyone question her? I backpedaled, recoiling from her anger. Well, I'm just trying to consider all the options, I said. I don't know what's going on. She didn't answer. For a while after that day, she wouldn't speak to me at all. But the emails kept coming. She peppered in so many charming anecdotes and astrological updates, always keeping them halfway too eccentric. Hello, this is Chloe. Moon slipped from Sagittarius into Capricorn last night between 1.08 a.m. and 8.31 a.m. this morning. Capricorn is a sign for organization, practicality, and being businesslike. Caution and pessimism in the air. Do not act too businesslike for the sake of others. At the embassy, we are having a special meeting here about safety and security on Wednesday. It will be led by the property managers. They will answer safety and security questions. Every resident is requested to be there. I have my list of questions and suggestions ready. After all, we are in Capricorn. The embassy was her joke name for her apartment building. Not a delusion, of course, just the cute eccentricity of a little old lady. A few months later, she was moving out of the embassy. Another move, and I had helped her find a new senior apartment complex. She signed the lease in late October 2014. Then she called me about 9 a.m. one day in early November. Hello? Emily, hi. Well... I did something bad. What? I did something bad. I'm in trouble. Why? You're going to be mad at me. What did you do? I sat down on the living room couch. Just tell me what happened, I said, trying to sound casual. Well, my neighbor has a Halloween decoration on her door, she said. Oh boy, I thought. Did she tear down this poor woman's Halloween decoration? So I lit a match to it. I'm just so tired of what she's doing. She's playing the TV loud on purpose so that people can't hear what's going on over there. I can still, I interrupted her. 
A match? Did it catch fire? Well, it made a lot of smoke. I tried to put it out right away. Did the smoke alarm go off? I asked. Yeah, and the doors closed, she said, referring to the emergency fire doors, which automatically triggered shut in case of fire on either end of the long hallway. When they closed, it scared me, so I ran to the kitchen and got a glass of water and threw it on the door. And I ran back to the kitchen and got another glass of water, and I threw it. But she opened the door, and I threw it in her face, Clotine said, a giggle bubbling up with the last three words. But then the fire department came, and there were so many, and, I mean, I put the fire out before they even got there. It was just a lot of smoke. I sat down on the couch and started rubbing my forehead with my free hand. The fire department? What did they say to you? I asked. Well, they didn't really say anything, but then the police came. Oh no, I whispered. Mom, were they, what did they ask you? They came inside my apartment and I was crying. They told me it was gonna be okay. I don't wanna go to jail. Is that what you told them, Mom? Well, yeah, I don't wanna go to jail. Wait, did they arrest you? I asked. Well, they were looking at the tarot deck on my table. They were looking through the deck and they asked me about the fire card. Of course, that's not even what that means. That's what I told them. Oh no, I groaned, this is a big deal. This is a really big deal, mom. What else, tell me exactly what you told them. I told them everything. I didn't know it would make so much smoke. The fire was out before the fire department got there. What did they tell you to do next? The detective left his card here, she told me. He wants you to bring me into the station. Okay, I said, give me the number. I took her to the police station the next day. They took her mugshot, fingerprinted her, and we left. Her apartment complex happened to be across the street from the station. As we were walking home, I said, I'm going to make an appointment with a psychiatrist, and we're gonna do whatever the psychiatrist tells us to do. I really need you to come to that appointment. It felt urgent. It felt like I needed to help Clotine demonstrate she was getting some kind of treatment, even though I wasn't expecting a SWAT team to show up or any of the rest of what was coming. Clotine worried about prison, a lot. She brought it up several times. By this time, I'd known for years that she'd actually been to prison and given birth in prison in 1966. She never said it, but it was clear that although she still believed her delusions and even believed she had a good reason for setting the fire, she also remembered prison and knew she didn't want to go back. Throughout this time, I'd say over and over, you're not going to jail, mom. I heard in my empty reassurance the echo of the voice of child Emily, always prepared to reassure Clotine about anything and everything. We can still get to Ohio, Mom. It's gonna be okay. If my dad comes by, that doesn't mean I'll move in with him or something. Come on, Mom, why would I leave you? And now, you're not going to jail. We just have to do all the right things. Just like it had throughout my life, my reassurance calmed her down, at least temporarily. But she worried anyway. That worry was at least partially the reason she agreed to see a psychiatrist. 
She was even grateful that I might save her from a fate she could see unspooling before her. So I got to work on getting an appointment for her. A few days later, Dr. Baker welcomed us into her office. She looked very young to me, 30 at most. In my head, I was calculating how long she could have possibly been a doctor. How long do medical school, residency, and a potential post-residency fellowship program take? Eight years? Ten? What's brought you in today, she said, interrupting my thoughts. I had prepared what I wanted to say, and I launched in. I want to say some things to my mom as part of communicating to you. Before the appointment, I had decided to open with some positive, appreciative thoughts for my mom. I imagined that during this visit, the doctor would give Clotine a formal diagnosis and prescribe medication, two things I'd never seen Clotine face. I also knew that I wanted Clotine to be as willing as possible to take the doctor's advice. And I hoped that what I was about to say would make her more compliant. The appointment felt important, consequential. Mom, I said, I want you to know that we've had a really hard time, but there are some really good things about me that I get from you. So one of the things I love about myself is that I'm hilarious, she giggled. It's true, you are really funny, Mom. You make people laugh and I'm the same way. I continued, I also get my intelligence from you. You are really smart. Well, sometimes I don't feel like I am, Clotine said. Well, you are, I said, and I get that from you. The third thing I get from you is this belief in myself that I can do anything. You have always believed in me. That means a lot to me. I'm able to do the important things I do because you've believed in me. Yes, Emily, she said, looking at me. You can do anything you want. I looked her directly in the eyes before continuing. I'd said how much I appreciated Clotine because I needed a way to tell myself that I wasn't a bad daughter for what I was about to say next. In that moment, I felt guilty. And I did feel like I might be a bad daughter for deciding not to sign off on her refusal to seek help. The moment passed. So I said, I want the doctor to understand your history. I told the doctor the details about the fire. Then I said, is that what happened, Mom? Yes, it is, Clotine replied. It's because my mom believes certain things, I said. The doctor turned to focus on me. I didn't know where Clotine was looking. I avoided her gaze. Teetering between guilt and resolve, I continued. She believes that her neighbor is running a prostitution ring. And this is a senior housing complex, okay? She thinks people are being held hostage. She thinks she can hear conversations downstairs that are clearly out of earshot. She thinks she can hear both sides of a phone conversation on the first floor, on the other side of the building, when she lives on the third floor. I continued to keep my eyes forward, careful not to look at Clotine for fear her reaction would silence me before I was finished. I was, for once, speaking the whole truth about my mother's illness to someone who didn't seem like she was going to crumple any of it into a tight, crinkly ball and toss it away. How long has this been going on? asked Dr. Baker. 
Well, that's really happening. I have really good hearing, said Clotine, before I could answer. I kept my gaze fixed on Dr. Baker as I said, Mom, you have been hearing voices your whole life, and it's always the neighbors. Don't you think that's strange that you always have a problem with neighbors? Yeah, she replied credulously. I don't know what it is about me. Mom, I said, finally turning to her, tell her about the time you saw Osama bin Laden. My mom launched into the story. The nursing home, tall man syndrome, the turban touching the ceiling. Dr. Baker took it all in stride. She asked a few more questions. Have you ever taken psychiatric medication? Have you ever been hospitalized? As the 30-minute visit was ending, Dr. Baker said, I'm going to recommend immediate hospitalization so that Ms. Tubbs can get stabilized. She set a fire, and it's clear she is a danger to others. I was shocked. Wow, I thought. Hospitalization. This really is serious. That moment brought me validation, which brought me relief. Clotine had an illness, which meant she had options for treatment, a path to follow. All these years, without a professional diagnosis, I found I couldn't really say, my mom has schizophrenia. I no longer felt pressure to minimize Clotine's condition or her actions. Now I had to find out whether she would continue to deny help. Are you willing to do that, mom? I asked. Are you willing to go into the hospital? After I explained and assured her that I would handle the cable guy and pick up her Shih Tzu, Tiny, she relented. All her fight had left her. Okay, if that's what I need to do, was all she said. She wasn't admitting to any mental illness, but she'd just been booked at the police station. Even she knew everything wasn't okay. I drove her straight to the hospital without stopping at her apartment or anywhere else. I didn't want to lose any momentum. After finding a hospital with an open bed for her, filling out paperwork, hanging around waiting rooms, and completing all the other tedious steps that grease the wheels of institutionalization, she was admitted that day. The lobby outside of the psychiatric ward had a set of lockers, and we found a locker for her and put her stuff in it. Then I said goodbye. How long am I going to be here? Clotine asked. The social worker said, you'll talk about that with the doctor. No longer than you need to be. They don't keep people in these places for a long time like they used to, I added, probably just a few days. In the end, it was almost a month. She had to leave her entire life behind that day. I reassured her I'd be picking up Tiny as soon as I left the hospital. I told her I'd bring her some clothes. I wasn't allowed to bring her anything else, not even books. Okay, Mom, I said, waving. I'll be back to visit you. I'll be back as soon as they let me come. Okay, she said. She seemed to be taking this new development pretty well. I don't think she knew what was coming. She didn't know how the medication was going to make her feel or that she would lose 100 pounds within the following year as a side effect of her schizophrenia medication. She didn't know the medication would cause such pronounced tremors 
that another doctor would diagnose her with Parkinson's disease, and she'd take Parkinson's medication unnecessarily for the next 12 months. She didn't know that her schizophrenia medication would have another bizarre side effect of bleeding her dry of her affection for her dog, Tiny, whom she gave away two months later. She just didn't have it in her to care about Tiny anymore. She didn't know that while she was still in the hospital, each day of her stay would be scheduled from early in the morning to late at night. She knew she'd have to share a room, but she didn't know she'd witness patients acting out violently. She didn't know that one night she'd wake up in the dark to a shadow of a man standing over, watching her sleep. Go back to your bed, she'd have to tell him sternly. She didn't know that she'd seem pretty sane by comparison to the other patients, as long as you didn't get her talking about her neighbors. She also didn't know that she wouldn't have access to caffeine. So in addition to beginning a new medication regimen for schizophrenia, she'd also have to deal with headaches from caffeine withdrawal. She didn't even know how awful the hospital food would be, that it made public school cafeteria food look five-star rated, that it would taste like it was made by people who didn't know they were feeding actual human beings or didn't care. She didn't know all that when she waved goodbye.